We are getting closer and closer to the end of the book of James, and as we do so, uh, I want to remind you from time to time what this book is all about. Here's one way to think about the book of James. James is imparting practical wisdom for the sake of moral formation. Practical wisdom for the sake of moral formation. And this is important because it's something I think the church has largely neglected. It's something the church tends to neglect in our day. James writes this letter in order to form, shape, and mold the Christians he is writing to in a way consistent with the gospel of grace and the teachings of Jesus, especially the Sermon on the Mount, which he echoes again and again and again in this letter. And that's why James is so full of what you could call ethical or moral instruction. You read, you read James, and that's kind of how it sounds. It's almost like a, a textbook of Christian ethics. Now, you, you know, Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, was not too fond of James for this very reason. He thought James uh, really was too legalistic. There was too much law and not enough gospel in this book. As we have worked our way through James, and I know it's been off and on for a long time now, but as we have worked our way through James, what we have seen again and again is all of this ethical instruction, all of this moral formation that James is doing is anchored entirely in the grace of the gospel. It's anchored entirely in the grace of God. Everything he says flows out of grace and is the fulfillment of grace in your life. There's no legalism here at all rightly understood. James is not legalistic at all. You can think of it this way. What James is doing throughout this letter is working out the implications of the gospel, working out the implications of God's grace in different areas of our lives. It's been said, God's salvation is a free gift, but it'll cost you everything. God's salvation is a, is a free gift, but it will cost you everything. And that is exactly right. That, that paradox captures something very true about the gospel, about our salvation. Salvation is a free gift. And that free gift includes the free forgiveness of our sins. You don't have to do anything. You simply trust in Christ and all your sins are forgiven. All your sins are washed away by his blood. It is a free gift. It could not be more free. Come to me all you who have no money and buy from me is the gospel invitation. But at the same time, this same salvation that brings the free forgiveness of our sins also brings about the transformation of our lives. And that's where it gets costly. Because in this salvation, God not only forgives us for all the sins we commit, but he also reconstructs and reorients our lives in such a way that now we begin to obey. We begin to build a new kind of life on this foundation, a life of obedience, a life of faithfulness. We start to live in accord with God's original design for the human race. And as that design is brought to fulfillment in Jesus himself. And so, yes, salvation is a free gift, but you cannot be saved without being changed. God accepts us as we are, but he doesn't let us stay that way. And that's really what James is dealing with, the second part of that. God doesn't let you stay the way you were, so what does it look like when God starts to, to reconstruct and reorient your life? James shows us. James reminds us there is no such thing as cheap grace, grace without repentance, without obedience, without service, or without sacrifice. If you say you are a Christian, you have to live like a Christian. That is James' message. 
And James shows us what a true Christian looks like. The reality is that there is more than one way to get the gospel wrong. I think this is why Luther didn't like James, perhaps, because he only thought of legalism, that that was the one way to get the gospel wrong. Legalism is, is the great enemy, that's the great problem. But the reality is there's a ditch on the other side. Yes, legalism is a problem. The idea that our works could earn God's favor, that we could somehow merit God's salvation, that's just completely and utterly false. And teachers like Martin Luther were right to attack legalistic corruptions of the gospel, even more subtle legalistic corruptions of the gospel. We should do the same. But that is not the only way to get the gospel wrong. We can also get the gospel wrong in the other direction by using the gospel as an excuse for lawlessness and moral laxity. Saying, I'm saved by grace, so it doesn't matter what I do. I'm saved by grace, so it doesn't matter how I live. I'm saved by grace, therefore I can indulge myself and live however I want. And let me tell you, that message is actually a lot more common in the church today than the legalistic message, do this or do that to earn God's favor. I dare say in our culture today, that kind of lawless presentation of the gospel is the much bigger issue. I would say generally speaking, the problem we face today is not that people are trying too hard to obey God. Just look at the state of our culture. Look at the state of the church. Does it look like a bunch of people trying too hard to obey God? I don't think so. The main issue we face today is not people being too scrupulous or too careful in their obedience. If anything, the issue is that people are gripped by a spirit of entitlement. Thinking, God owes me happiness whether I pursue holiness or not. The question is not, what do I have to do to earn favor from God? But what am I already owed? What does God already owe me? It's the spirit of entitlement that has gripped us, a false view of grace. Well, James answers that kind of nonsense. Yes, James does teach salvation by grace. Again, everything he says is anchored in the free grace of the gospel. Sometimes it's, it's explicit. At other places, he alludes to it, but he says things like this. In chapter 1, uh, he says, God has brought us into new life by his word of truth. He has begotten us into this new life by his word of truth. This is something God has done. God has given you this new life. He's implanted this new life in you by his word of truth. That's grace. That's the free salvation of God. Everything else flows from that. But James also teaches the necessity of transformation, the necessity of a renewed life, the necessity of obedience. So he tells us in chapter two, faith without works is dead. God's brought you to faith through this word of truth implanted in your life, and now that faith has to get busy doing good works. Throughout the letter, he shows us what true religion looks like, what true Christian wisdom looks like. In fact, again, you can think of this letter as giving us a series of case studies showing us how the faith applies in different areas of life, what faith in action looks like in different sectors of your life. And now as we come to the end of the letter in James chapter 5, he circles back to some of the same themes he started with. He really circles back to this question, what does faith, or I'll put it this way, what do faith and wisdom look like in times of suffering? 
What does it look like to be faithful and wise in a time of suffering? In the very opening verses of the book, in chapter 1, he focused on persistence and patience in the face of trials and the need for prayer. What do you do when you're faced with, with a trial? You persist through it. You, you're patient through that trial, counting it joy, and you pray to God for wisdom. So, so how does the whole letter open? It, it opens with this call on Christians to be persistent and patient in the face of trials and it reminds them of their need to be a praying people. And what does he come back to here at the end of the letter? Those same topics. Patience in the face of sufferings and the need to pray. And so today we are going to focus our attention on patience. That's what James is talking about here in verses 7 through 12 of chapter 5, patience. Remember, in the first six verses of James chapter 5, James is talking about, or even to, the church's rich persecutors, particularly those unbelieving Jews who have attacked the church, who are seeking to persecute and oppress the church. But now... James turns back to addressing the persecuted. What do oppressed Christians need to know? What do oppressed Christians need to do? Well, he says in verse 7, Therefore, brothers, be patient. Therefore, brethren, be patient. In fact, seven times in this section, seven times in these verses, he's going to use a word that means patience or that means endurance or something similar. He uses different words. But seven different times, he gets the same concept of patience or persistence or endurance. That's really what the whole passage is about. Patient endurance. It's a call to steadfast patience in the face of trial. And if we want to connect this with the first six verses, uh, his thought uh, runs something like this. He's telling these Christians, be patient. Be patient in the face of sustained persecution do not become a violent revolutionary yourself. Do not become revolutionary. Be patient. Because if you become a, a revolutionary zealot, you will become the mirror image of those who are attacking you. So don't be a revolutionary like your persecutors. Instead, be patient. Don't try to take matters into your own hands. Wait. Wait on God to act. Wait on God to make his move. Wait on God to come and deliver you, to rescue you, to bring justice. James is saying to these persecuted believers, just hang in there. Help is on the way. Hold on. God is coming to rescue you. He's coming to help you. God the judge is coming. God the judge is at the door. So you don't have to play the part of judge yourself. You can leave that to God. You can entrust yourself to him. You can wait on the God who will just judge justly. You can't set everything right. You can't bring in perfect justice. Wait for God to do that. But here's what you need to understand about these verses. Whether you are facing persecution for being a Christian or enduring some other form of suffering, whatever it may be, any form of suffering, really, that, that we might go through in this fallen world, the words of James here apply to you. They apply to that situation. Whatever trial you're facing, whatever suffering you might be enduring, what does God call you to in the midst of that suffering, that trial? He calls you to patient and steadfast endurance. And James shows us here what that means. Patience is a Christian 
virtue. It is an aspect of our faith. There are many places in Scripture where faith is tied to patience. The life of Abraham is a great example of this. Paul calls attention to this in Romans chapter 4. Patience really as an aspect of our faith. Patience is also closely related to hope. In fact, when Scripture talks about hope, that's one way to think about it. It's talking about patient faithfulness. Being faithfully patient. That's what Christian hope really is. As we await the fulfillment of all God has promised to us. So this is what patience is all about. But you know, patience is hard to come by, isn't it? Patience is not easy to get. You know, there's that uh, old prayer, Lord, give me patience and give it to me now. (laughs) It does not work that way. That is not how patience works. The problem with patience is that you can't learn patience quickly. The only way to learn patience is to wait on something. There are no shortcuts you can take. You simply have to be patient and wait for what has been promised. See, that's really what Christian patience is. It is waiting for what God has promised. It's waiting for God to fulfill his promises. Now, we know in all different areas of life, we have to practice patience. You know, parents, think about how often you tell your kids to be patient. You know, you get in the car to go on a trip, and you're 10 minutes in, and the kids start asking, are we there yet? Parents say, be patient. (laughs) Uh, You got kids who uh, both want to play with the same toy, and so they're going to take turns. And the kid who's waiting is saying, is it my turn yet? When is it going to be my turn with the toy? And you as a parent say, patient. You kids probably hear that from your parents a lot, right? Be patient. They, they, they call on you to wait. They call on you to wait. We all know what it's like to wait. The reality is a lot of life is filled with waiting. That's true no matter what age we are. A lot of life is filled with waiting. The question James is answering for us is this. As we are waiting for God to fulfill his promises, how do we fill that time? As we wait on God, what do we do in the meantime? How do we fill that time? When you're waiting on God, what do you do? In order to wait faithfully, we have to know the one who has told us to wait is trustworthy. And we have to know what we are waiting for is worth it. And clearly, James is presupposing those two realities here. God, who he describes in this passage as merciful and compassionate, he's certainly trustworthy. So we've got that part. And we know that what we're waiting for is going to be worth it because ultimately what we're waiting for is the consummation of our salvation. The the fulfillment of all God has promised to us. Ultimately, that comes in the resurrection of the body at the last day. That's certainly worth waiting for. In order to teach us how to be patient, in order to teach us how to fill the time as we wait on God, James gives us three examples and three commands. Three examples of what to do, three positive examples, and then three commands that are a mix of what to do and what not to do. So three examples, three commands. Let's look at each one of these. Let me walk you through these uh, these examples here. First, we have the example of the farmer in verse 7. This may be a tough one for city folk to grasp, but uh, in in the ancient world where uh, life was much more agrarian, this was a very familiar illustration that James is using here. And I think we can uh, figure out how to relate to it. James says, see how the farmer waits for the fruit of the earth, being patient until it receives the early and the late rains. 
Now, those early and late rains that James speaks of here, that's just not some natural phenomenon, like the weather just always works this way. If you actually go back, there's a lot in the Old Testament about the early and late rains, like Deuteronomy 11 and Jeremiah 5, Hosea 6, all talk about the early and late rains. Other passages do too. And sometimes this is used as a metaphor for how God will bless his people. But it's also really, really clear when those early and late rains come, so the earth can produce its crop, these are blessings of God. And they're especially blessings that God gives to his obedient people. The farmer cannot make the rains fall or the crops come up. The farmer doesn't have the power to do those things. Instead, he's got to wait. He's got to wait on those rains. He can't make it happen. And he's got to wait on the crops to come up. He can't force the issue. But a good farmer, think about this. What does a good farmer do in the meantime? He does not sit around on his hands passively. No, farming is hard work. As the farmer waits on those rains and he waits on the crop to come up so it can be harvested, what does he do? He acts. He works. See, James is using this illustration so we will not confuse patience with passivity. Patience does not make you a passive person. What does the farmer do in the meantime as he is waiting? Well, he'll put down fertilizer. And he'll pull weeds. You ever talk to a farmer? It is hard work, and you are working every single day. Now, in the end, he's confident that God will send the rains and he will reap the crop. And because he has this confidence, he can be patient. But his impatience would not accomplish anything. Being impatient about the rains does not make them come any sooner. Being impatient about the crop coming forth from the ground doesn't make the plants grow any faster. Impatience accomplishes nothing. So the farmer must be patient. And James is saying to these Christians he's writing to, you must be patient. A great evangelistic harvest is coming, but you have to be patient. It's not going to happen all at once. The great transformation of the world is coming, but it's not going to happen all at once. In fact, it's going to take generations, centuries, millennia before the crop is fully ready to be harvested. So the the farmer illustrates some key aspects of patience. But then he moves on to a second example, the patience of the prophets, the prophets' pattern of life. Verse 10, he says, uh, as an example of patient suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Obviously, all those who speak in the name of the Lord are, are going to be at risk because the word of the Lord is often offensive. If you speak God's truth in God's name, you're often going to cause offense, and that will put you at risk. You might have to suffer like the prophets did. But this is what James wants them to know. He wants these Christians to know their suffering is not unique or novel. God's people have been through this kind of thing before. Previous generations of saints have endured the same. In fact, the prophets... Those who are God's very spokesmen, those who are are holy and faithful, they suffered. They suffered a great deal. They suffered, and so you can endure suffering as well. Here James is communicating to these Christians, look, don't think that the normal Christian life is comfortable and easy, and that therefore hardship is abnormal. No, suffering for the Christian may not be a sign of of things gone wrong. It may be a sign of things gone normal. Because, hey, the prophets suffered. So why would you think you're going to be exempt? 
If the prophet suffered, you can expect to suffer as well. This suffering should not come as a surprise. Virtually every prophet we know anything about from the Old Testament suffered immensely. Think about Jeremiah, just to give one example. Uh, Jeremiah announced Judah would be judged, uh, just like Jesus announced Jerusalem would be judged, just like James has announced that there's going to be a judgment falling on Jerusalem and, and on uh, Judea. Jeremiah announced a similar kind of judgment, that the temple would be destroyed, the city would be destroyed, the city of Jerusalem. And, and, and what happens? He speaks the word of the Lord faithfully. What happens? Well, he gets thrown into a well. He gets death threats. Uh, even his own family uh, abandons him. That's what it meant to be a prophet for Jeremiah. It was not a very glamorous job. Okay? Uh, legend has it that uh, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, was sawn in two because he spoke an unpopular message. Think of Elijah and Elijah who were constantly on the run, having to go into hiding, into exile, having to go live in caves because they spoke the truth to the king and the king's out to get them. See, if you're a prophet, you're going to make enemies. And when you have enemies, you're going to suffer. If you're going to speak the word of the Lord, that's often going to be an unpopular message. But here again is the point Whatever the prophets suffered, nevertheless, they endured. They remained faithful despite their suffering. They kept on speaking the word of the Lord despite the opposition. They kept saying things people didn't want to hear. They kept exposing sins and calling people to obedience, confronting even kings and emperors with a message from God. And they did it simply because that's what God called them to do. And they suffered faithfully whatever hardship that brought them. And so here's James' point about the prophets. They were suffering, but they still did their job. And that's got to be true for us too. You may be suffering, but God's given you a job to do, a way to serve him, a, a way to advance his truth and his purposes and his kingdom in the world. Whatever suffering that brings you, do your job. Just like the prophets did. They suffered and they kept doing their job anyway, you do the same. That's James' point. Understand, suffering comes with the territory. It came with the territory for the prophets, and it will for us as well. James says in verse 11, we count as blessed those who have persevered. So those who have persevered through persecution and suffering will be blessed. That sounds a lot like Jesus in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Be glad and rejoice, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, James is just echoing the teaching of Jesus. Persevere through the suffering, through the opposition, and you will be blessed. That was true for the prophets. It's true for you too. The third example he gives is Job. And I trust you know the story of Job. Job was a righteous man who had it all, and then he lost it all. Satan was allowed to take it all from him. So he loses his kids, he loses his property, and all he's left with is a nagging wife who says, curse God and die, skin full of boils, and three so-called friends who come to accuse him and blame him for the whole thing. When we know, and Job knows, this is not his fault. He's not suffering because of any particular sin he's committed. But these three friends come along and they join in the satanic accusations against Job. And they blame him for all of his troubles. And so on top of everything else, Job is wrongly accused. He's wrongly turned into a scapegoat. He fears for his life. 
He's suffering not on account of any particular sin. And interestingly, a lot of those same things could be said of those Christians James is writing to. This is the diaspora. These are the Christians who scattered out from Jerusalem because of persecution, often leaving behind family and property. They too have experienced great loss and great hardship through no fault of their own. And they've got their Jewish brethren breathing down their necks saying, this is your fault, your, your troubles are your fault. You are to blame for this. And the Jews even scapegoating them, saying, you know, you're the reason that the, the Roman Empire is against us and all this kind of stuff. They too are facing false accusations and all kinds of suffering, very much like what Job endured. Now this is what's interesting to me about Job. You know, that, that, that James would use Job as an example of patience. When I read through the book of, uh, of Job, what comes to my mind is not patience. <laughs> you read the speeches of Job, like we read one this morning from Job chapter 19. He does not sound patient at all. If anything, it seems like James should have said, you know how Job was famous for his impatience. Because <laughs> that's really more how the book reads. That's how it seems. You know, you think, if this is patience, as you're reading through the book of Job, you might think, if this is patience, well, what, what would impatience look like? What would it mean to be impatient if Job is being patient? He says in chapter 6, verse 11, what is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should be patient? He's saying, what's the point of this waiting? What's the point of my patience? But again, we should not misunderstand the meaning of the word patience. Patience during suffering is fully compatible with lamenting before God, wrestling with God in prayer, even questioning God, asking why, God, aren't you acting? Why are you hanging me out to dry in this way? Patience is fully compatible with those kinds of questions, those kinds of prayers. But what's interesting, and this is why I think Job really is an example of patience, is through it all, even in all the hardship, even as he wrestles with all that has happened to him, all that has gone wrong in his life, he keeps on bringing those struggles, those trials, that, that, that lamenting. He keeps bringing it before God. He never turns away from God. He, he brings his really hard questions to God. It's as if Job was written to say, God can handle your questions. You can ask God anything. Any question you've got, you can bring it to God. It doesn't matter how hard the question is, God can handle it. And a lot of us have a lot of hard questions to ask about our lives. Why this has happened, why that has happened. That's where Job was. Asking those kind of questions doesn't mean your patience has run out. Those questions are an expression of patience if you take them continually to the Lord. And so really the point is this, through all of his trials, Job persevered, Job endured, Job stood firm in his faith. He didn't understand God, he didn't understand why God was doing what he was doing, but he didn't let go of God. He kept clinging to God, he kept clutching to God, knowing God is his only hope. You see this in chapter 13 where he says of God, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. You see it in chapter 19, which we read this morning, where he catalogs all of his sufferings, all of his hardships, but then he says, I know my Redeemer lives. He knows he will be redeemed from all this hardship. Job stood firm. He would not turn away from the Lord no matter how bad it got. He would not make a false confession of guilt and agree with his friends. Well, I guess this really is because of something I've done. He knew that wasn't true. 
He kept trusting God to act on his behalf. He kept waiting. He patiently waited on God to to rescue him, to restore him, to vindicate him, to glorify him. But how did he fill that time? With what you might call violent prayer. He assaulted God with his prayers, with his questions, with his arguments, with his doubts. And that's what patience can look like too. James here reminds us God had a purpose in Job's suffering. And because of the Lord's compassion and mercy, James calls attention to those attributes of God. All of Job's prosperity and then some were given back to him in the end. James wants us to remember not just all the trials and hardship Job went through, but how the story ends, that it turns out well for him in the end. And James is saying to us, to any who suffer as a Christian, as a believer, James is saying to us, what God brought about for Job, he will bring about for you. That is a picture of what God will ultimately do for all of his people who persist in their faith no matter what. That's what God is going to do for you too. If you will persist through whatever obstacles or trials you face, God will exalt you and rescue you and vindicate you just as he did Job. It's interesting, you know, I was reading a lot of commentaries on this passage in James uh, over the past couple weeks. And it's interesting to me how many commentaries actually end up disagreeing with what James says about Job. They just can't bring themselves to say, yeah, Job was patient. They might admit, well, Job started well when the trial first hit, and of course it ends well for Job. But in the middle, yeah, Job sinned, and Job wasn't, he wasn't really patient. Okay. I think the problem with that is these commentators are starting with a definition of patience. They think they know what patience is. James does not fit that definition. And so they say, well, James wasn't really patient. We've really got to do it the other way around. James tells us Job was patient. You know what patience looks like in the midst of hardship? Look at the book of Job. Job is like a mold that you can pour your own life into and say, okay, this is what patience looks like. Job shows us what patience is. Instead of saying, well, Job wasn't really patient, what we need to do is redefine patience. Because Job is the epitome of it. And this really brings us to actually what I think is a larger point. It's a little detour here, but I just want to mention this. Biblical virtues are often not what we think they are. We think we know what love is. And we say Jesus is love. God is love. Jesus is love. He's the embodiment of love. And then we're reading through the Gospels and we come to Matthew 23 where Jesus rips the Pharisees to shreds with a series of woes and a, and a series of, of harsh criticisms. At that point, we've either got to say, either Jesus was not loving, or we have to say, you know what, love is something different than what I thought. And of course, that's what we have to do. We've got to let Jesus define love for us. Or think about even what James does in this letter. James says that man's anger will not bring about the righteousness of God. Continually, he calls his readers to be careful with their tongues. He calls them to meekness and to gentleness. That's what wisdom from above looks like, meekness and and gentleness. And then, so that's really in chapter 4 where he talks about meekness and gentleness. And then in chapter 5, he goes on this tirade against the church's rich persecutors. That's what it looks like. Saying, come you rich, consider the, the, the weeping and howling that you'll do when these miseries come upon you. 
And so at that point, we had to say, well, James was not being meek and gentle there. James actually let his anger get the best of him. Or we've got to redefine those things and say, you know what? Sometimes being meek and gentle and being angry in a righteous way, this is what it can look like. And I think that's what we've got to do. And so it is here. James calls us to patience, and then he points us to Job, a man who seems at first glance to be very impatient, in calling on God to deliver him from his suffering, but actually he shows us what true patience is all about. So again, be patient. Let your patience be like that of Job. Let your patience drive you to fervent prayer as you call upon God to keep his promises, to bring about justice, to set the world right. We should have a patience that argues and wrestles with God about things in our own lives that don't match up to the promises of God, things in the world that don't match up to the promises of God. So those are James' three examples of patient and persistent faith, the endurance we are called to. But along the way, sprinkled in, James also gives several positive and negative commands so we will know, again, how to fill this time as we wait. There are three commands here, and we can look at these much more quickly. Verse 8, he says, establish your hearts or stand firm in your hearts. Establishing your heart means you plant yourself on the firm rock of God's word and you refuse to be moved away from it no matter what. Establishing your heart is the opposite of falling away. It means you refuse to give in to the temptation to turn away from God. You've established your heart. You've taken your stand. And come what may, this is where you're going to stand on the firm rock of God's word. Another command in verse nine, do not grumble. So think about this, whereas the prophets would use their tongues to speak the truth of the Lord, others are tempted to to grumble, to use their tongues to complain about their plight, to use their tongues in that kind of way. Think of the Israelites who grumbled against God in the wilderness and therefore perished because their grumbling was a sign of their unbelief. When our mouths are filled with grumbling, we can't use our mouths to pray or praise God. You're either going to grumble against God or give gratitude to God. It's going to be one or the other. Uh, Grumbling speech drives out prayerful speech and vice versa. So there's a battle for your speech here. Which way are you going to go with your speech? Are you going to be a grumbler or are you going to be a, a praiser, a prayer? And then verse 12, another command, and this echoes the Sermon on the Mount also. Do not swear by heaven and earth, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, the Bible does not forbid all swearing or oath-taking. If we are asked, for example, by a higher authority, say a court of law, to swear an oath, we're certainly permitted to do so. There are certain situations where oaths are permitted. God, in fact, even in Scripture, swears an oath. Jesus swears an oath before Caiaphas. Uh, The psalmist talks about making vows or oaths to God. Uh, Paul calls on God to be his witness as he makes an oath in 2 Corinthians 1. So it's not that all oaths are forbidden, but the point is this. We should not need oaths. We should not need to invoke oaths in ordinary day-to-day speech. Because if you need to invoke oaths in ordinary day-to-day speech, that means your speech is not normally trustworthy. And for Christians, as Christian people, our speech should be trustworthy. Our speech should be consistent. Our words should be true. Our words should be wise, measured, fitting, and truthful. In times of suffering, we may be especially tempted to make rash vows. We don't intend to actually keep. James is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
So let me summarize this. Let's, let's wrap all of this up. What is this section of James in chapter 5, verses 7 through 12? What is James telling us? We are to be a patient people, even in times of great hardship. And we, we need to know we are never alone in our suffering. Others have walked this same path before us and remained faithful, and you can do that too. Whatever hardship God calls you to endure, you can walk through it faithfully because others have trod a similar path. There's nothing unique or special about your suffering. Other people have gone through something very much like it and remained faithful. Further, understand that patience itself is a paradox. Precisely because we trust God, precisely because we know God is trustworthy and compassionate and merciful, precisely because we know that God is dependable, we expect his promises to be fulfilled in our lives and in history. And for that reason, patience does not make us passive, it drives us to prayer. Our patience makes us a praying people. How do you fill that time as you wait on God? You pray. Patience drives us to pray. It's actually when we get impatient and give up on God that we become passive. And we just stop praying altogether because we don't think it's going to do any good. So what does it mean to be patient? It means to wait on God. It means you wait on God to fulfill his promises. And as we wait on God, we fill that time with obedience and with prayer. You know, you need to understand this about yourself. When you are in a difficult time, when you are in a time that is especially full of pain and stress, that is when you are at your most spiritually vulnerable. And that is when you're going to be most tempted to grumble and to lie. That's when addictions are most likely to grip you. People who struggle with addictions, it's, it's, it's most often people turning to something to numb the pain and escape from realities they don't want to face. They can't handle the stress, so they look for some way to, to numb themselves to the pain of it. Impatience leads to idolatry. See, when we get impatient, we, 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 we turn to these addictions, or we grumble, or we lie, we do these different things. Times of trial expose our worries and our insecurities and our fears. But you need to know, as the people of God, you don't have to fall into any of those traps. Those are traps Satan will set for you in times of hardship. You don't have to fall into any of those traps. You can remain confident about the future no matter what. Because you have a sure and certain hope, you have reasons to endure, reasons to keep fighting the good fight. You know you're going to be vindicated and victorious in the end. And so you don't have to seek some kind of escape hatch. You can continue waiting patiently for the Lord. Patience simply is waiting for God to work knowing he's at work in the meantime, even if you can't see it. Psalm 27, the psalmist says, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 37, wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land you will look on when the wicked are cut off. My favorite passage about waiting on the Lord, Isaiah 40. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
patiently waiting on the Lord to work, knowing he is at work in the meantime. The Christian life is largely a battle of patience versus impatience. Impatience comes from seeing that the world is not as it should be, which is true, but then giving up on God to do anything about it and trying to take matters into your own hands. That's really when when, when we get impatient, we try to take matters into our own hands and that's always disastrous because you can't be your own savior and you can't fix the world. You can't do those things any more than the farmer can control those early and later rains he needs. See, your impatience is not going to change anything. But if impatience is knowing the world is not as it should be, patience is knowing the world is not as it will be. Patience means we hope. Patience means we haven't given up on God to act in patient faith. We trust God to set things right in the end, to to bring this wild story he's telling to a happy conclusion. God's not going to work according to our timetable. We know that. But he is going to work. So brothers, be patient. Cultivate patience in your life. Actively wait on God. Wait on God to make his move. Because he will. Take the long view. Take the long view in regard to your own life and in regard to history. God is telling a long and winding story. And right now we're in the middle of it. We're somewhere in those middle chapters of the story. And there are all kinds of strange plot lines going on right now. But in the end, we know how this story comes to a conclusion. We know this story has a happy ending. The Lord will come and he will judge. Whatever jam you're in, he's going to deliver you. Those who endure will be blessed. So face pressures with patience. Face trials with joy. Face hardships with hope. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.